this message is from Living Rock Church, and we trust you'll be really equipped, envisioned, and encouraged as you listen today. As you came in, I'm sure you got your marked bookmark. So as a church, over the next few months, we're going to be reading through Mark's Gospel together. We'll be considering Mark's Gospel uh, each month. And so when we meet together in the groups at the end of January, we'll be talking about chapters 1 to 3. When we meet at the end of February, we'll be talking about chapters 4 to 6 and so on. So that as a church, as a body, we're reading the same scriptures together, which is always a good thing. And, um, you know, our, our view of Jesus and our, our understanding of Jesus is crucial to the gospel. Our understanding of who Jesus is is crucial to our Christian faith. It's crucial to our understanding of what God is like. Word talks about how God is invisible. He's unseen, and yet he was made himself known through Jesus Christ. And so what better um, way to spend our time than to immerse ourselves in a gospel that presents to us Jesus Christ, the life of the most important, significant man who's ever lived, the Son of God, perfect in humanity, perfect and whole in his deity, who came and changed everything through his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. What a great thing to consider during the first half of this year. And um, I love the Gospels. I love the first four books of the New Testament. And um, if you put the next slide up, I want to just talk, and I've, I've shared these things before in this context, so I apologize if you've heard these things before, but just to really set the scene, I want to introduce Mark's Gospel, but I want to set it firstly amongst the other four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And uh, Mark is most likely the first Gospel that was written out of the four. It was the earliest written Gospel. And uh, I think there was an article a number of years ago now, I think it might have been in the Sun newspaper, and it said something like, um, gospel spin shock. And uh, some, some uh, bright spark in the Sun newspaper had uh, uncovered something that the church has known for uh, millennia, which is this, that each gospel is spun to present Jesus in a certain way to a certain audience. Each gospel writer has a very specific mission. And that's this, present one dimension, one aspect of Jesus Christ and his ministry to a certain audience. Knowing that, it probably couldn't do justice to the fullness of Christ, so it chooses to take just one. But the wonderful thing is, four of them choose to do that, and so we get a 4D image of Jesus Christ as we read through the Gospels. And so they have an audience and they have an aspect of Christ that they want to um, present And Matthew, in his gospel, is writing very much to a Jewish audience. Matthew is desperate for the Jews to understand that Jesus really is the Messiah. You know, out of these four gospel writers, two of them were disciples. They were part of the twelve. Those two are Matthew and John. And uh, Matthew is also known as Levi and uh, was called by Jesus and John is part of, uh, was brothers with James, and they were both the sons of Zebedee, the sons of Thunder. It's a great nickname, isn't it? Rather than the, you know, the sons of Drizzle. <laughs> the sons of Smog. The sons of Thunder. And those two are part of the 12. 
Luke and Mark were not part of the 12. Mark was most likely around during some of the time of the Gospels and was certainly very present in the life of the early church with his mother, Miriam, or Mary, as it's described in our Bibles. And Luke was a Gentile doctor who gathers all the evidence together to present something, a story of Jesus. And so Matthew and John are essentially eyewitnesses. They were knocking around with Jesus right from the beginning of his ministry. Mark probably turns up somewhere along the line, and Luke turns up afterwards. And all of these writers are writing to present something to Jesus. And Matthew is saying, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the king. He's the one you've been waiting for. And time and again, he says this. This happened to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah or Micah or Nahum or any, any prophet. He was like, this is, what, this is the one they were talking about. This is him. This is the Messiah. Talking about the king and his kingdom. And Matthew records big uh, chunks of Jesus preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God. Five long discourses that present the kingdom of God. And is very much presenting Jesus as I say. His wonderful teaching about the kingdom of God. We know that Matthew includes many of the things that Jesus did as well. But he's there to present Jesus to the Jews as the Messiah. I say. He's the king. When we get to Luke, Luke is presenting Jesus not so much as a king, and he's not writing to the Jews, he's writing to the Greeks, and that's helpful because Luke himself was a Greek man. And he very much wants to present Jesus as the perfect man. You see, the Greeks were big on philosophy, and they, they wanted to find individuals, men that they could trust and look up to. And Luke is saying to the Greeks, you can't get any better than this one. The perfect man, the cosmopolitan savior who met with men and women, rich and poor, sick and healthy, even the criminals on the cross, he relates to them. He is the perfect man who knows what it's like to be human. Matthew, I say, Luke, I know. And then we come to John. And John writes after Matthew, Mark, and Luke have finished and, and established their writings. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels, the three gospels. The word synoptic literally means seeing together. And they record many of the same teachings, many of the same miracles and stories that we find in Jesus' life. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels. And they were all probably written and finished off by around AD 70 at the latest. And then about maybe 15, 20 years on, John comes along and he reads how Matthew's presented Jesus as the king and he reads how Luke has presented Jesus as the perfect man and we'll come back to Mark in a minute. And he says, I want to add something to this wonderful story, this wonderful picture. I want to paint another portrait and it's this, Jesus as God, yes. divine, yes. the son of God. Yes. Not I say, not I know, but I am. Those words would have rung in the ears. I am God's very special covenant name for himself, the eternal one. The son of God, presenting his godship, his sovereignty and his, his being the son of God. And then Mark, who is Mark writing to? Mark is writing to the Romans. And he's wanting to present to the Roman audience something about Jesus. Not presenting him as a king, not presenting him as a man, not presenting him as God, but presenting him as a servant. I do. The one who came to do the work, the will of the Father. And isn't it fantastic that we can see Jesus as a king and a servant. We can see Jesus as a man and as God. What this wonderful four-dimensional image of our wonderful Savior that we're worshiping this morning 
the wisdom of God in pulling these four right things together to present a thematic portrait, a picture, an image of Jesus Christ that helps us understand what Jesus was like, what he came to do, but more importantly, what God is like. I love how Matthew traces Jesus' genealogy. If you go to Matthew's gospel and turn to Matthew 1, where does Matthew take Jesus' um, line, family line back to? Have a look. Abraham, Father Abraham, had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. He takes him right back to Abraham. Abraham was the father of the Jewish faith. And so to trace Jesus back to Abraham for the Jewish readers, like, he's the real deal. And then Luke traces Jesus' genealogy. A little bit later on, he, he picks this up in, in Luke 3. And he traces Jesus' genealogy back in Luke 3, 38 to Adam. There you are, Adam. <laughs> Name dropping. We were saying Luke was presenting Jesus as the perfect man, and, and Luke traces Jesus right back to the first man. And when John presents Jesus' genealogy, he says, in the beginning was the Word. He's God. I can't trace him back to Abraham. I can't trace him back to Adam. I trace him back to the beginning and before that. He's the eternal one. And then when Mark presents Jesus, Jesus is up and running. Okay. John the Baptist is out looking weird, shouting in the wilderness, proclaiming the word of the Lord, and Jesus is baptized in the River Jordan. Straight off the mark, Mark, mark is going for it, presenting Jesus as the one who came to do the will of the Father. And you know, Mark is a great gospel to read because Matthew and Luke and to some extent John, but certainly Matthew and Luke, drew a lot from Mark's gospel for their own material. Only 3% of Mark's gospel is unique to Mark. Just 3% of the writings of Mark's gospel is only found in Mark alone. All of the other stories and, and, and descriptions of Jesus' life and what he did are found in Matthew, Luke, and John. And in fact, 75% of Mark's gospel is found in Matthew and Luke. So it's a great one to have an overview, if you like, of the gospels. And the good news is, it's the shortest. You can even read it in a small book with big letters. I feel like you're really making progress. Two pages in, bookmark, yes. And this man, John Mark, his real name was Mark Johanan Kolobaktolas. Say Kolobaktolas with me. Kolobaktolas. Does it good, doesn't it? Sounds like an infection. Colabactolus. Marcus Johannan Colabactolus. The word Marcus was a Roman name and it meant harvest. And you know what? It's a very evangelistic book. And Mark may well have had Roman links. In fact, his family was clearly wealthy. Their household was, was large and they entertained the, the early church met there. And potentially it was the venue for the Last Supper. It's a significant place, Mark's house. Johannan is a Hebrew word. And uh, it means God has shown grace. And kolabaktolas, he's, he's, he's harvest, he's God has shown grace, and he's stubby-fingered. <laughs> That's what kolabaktolas means, stubby-fingered. So there you go, no one's perfect. But 
He's Greek, he's Latin, and he's Hebrew. He's very cosmopolitan, and so he's a great person to, to glean from and read from. He would have known about Greek influence. He would have known about Roman influence, and he was certainly of Hebrew, Hebrew origin. And so, therefore, he has this wonderful kind of overview picture, and he's writing to a Roman audience. As I've said, he wasn't one of the 12. But it's thought, if you turn to Mark's gospel, Mark 14, um, some people believe that Mark is actually, this is one of the unique um, verses, or few verses, that's unique to Mark's gospel. Mark 14, verse 50. Jesus has just been arrested by a mob in the Garden of Gethsemane. And in uh, Mark 14, verse 50, here we've got these really burly, strong fishermen. Among them, Peter, who said, Lord, I'll never forsake you. I'll never leave you. I'll never turn my back on you. I'll never deny you. And then this angry mob turns up in verse 50 of Mark 14. Then all the disciples deserted him and ran away. Wow. You know, Jesus knows what it's like to be rejected. Jesus knows what it's like to be forgotten. Jesus knows what it's like to be left and abandoned. God is so good that he became familiar. He's so familiar with our sufferings. He's not aloof. He came as a man and experienced and encountered the God who created everything came and suffered so that he can identify with us. You know, whatever we're going through, God is with us in it. He's experienced it. He knows what it's like. It says they abandoned him. They left him. And one young, young man following behind was clothed only in a long linen shirt. And when the mob tried to grab him, he slipped out of his shirt and ran away naked. That, people believe, is Mark talking about himself. That he may well have been in the garden, witnessed the arrest of Jesus, just a young man. But something was caught at that point, not his robe. He was caught, and he, he runs away. But we know later on, he doesn't run away anymore. He's a man who travels on mission trips with Paul and Barnabas and Peter. And it's thought that he gleaned a lot of his understanding from these three great apostolic men. But most of all, in many ways, this is Peter's gospel. Mark's gospel is Peter's gospel. His name's not on it, but his fingerprints are all over it. You know, that Mark would have gleaned so much from his teachings and his memories and his stories of Christ. This is Simon Peter's gospel. They would have spent time together traveling. They would have spent time together in Rome. And if you turn to Mark 1, the first chapter, which David read last week. Wasn't David's word last week fantastic? So encouraging. If you've not heard it, please listen to it on the podcast. It was a fantastic word to set us up for this year. But in the first chapter of Mark, Simon Peter is mentioned first as the first of the disciples. And he's also mentioned four times by name in the first chapter, more than any of the disciples. And the first miracle that he records Jesus performing is what? Healing of his mother-in-law. There you go. And so we see this kind of link and connection with Peter. If you turn to Mark 8, we find this kind of double whammy, this uh, high and low that Peter experiences. In Mark 8, 27, we'll come back to this, and Jesus says, who do people say I am? And Peter says, you're the Messiah. And Jesus says, you're blessed. Well, he doesn't say it in this bit. But then later on, he, Jesus says, now I need to go. I'm going to die. I'm going to give, lay my life down. And, and Peter says, no, Lord, not so. And, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. 
we find again this, that this, this intimate action with, with, with Peter and Jesus, and later on how Peter denies Jesus as well. He, he lists his mistakes. The book itself starts where Peter would have met with Jesus and John the Baptist. And in many ways, Mark is a gospel of action. 18 miracles in 16 chapters. In fact, 16 miracles in the first nine chapters. Now that's bang for your buck right there, isn't it? Straight off, action-packed, miracles, all sorts of things happening, snapshots of Jesus on the move. John records seven miracles or signs that Jesus performed. Luke and Mark both record 18 each, and Matthew records maybe a couple more, but does it over an extra uh, 12 chapters. Mark is much more punchy, doesn't bother at all with any of Jesus' birth. Don't go to Mark's gospel when you want to get the nativity story. It's not there. Go to Matthew and Luke for those things. Nothing about his childhood. And even the end is abrupt. Have you read the end of Mark's gospel? Go to Mark's gospel. It's like, I don't know what happened to Mark. Whether it was like an early rapture or something. Because he's obviously mid-sentence in Mark 16 verse 8. It wasn't called that at the time. But it says that the women fled from the tomb. They've just realized that Jesus isn't there anymore. They're trembling. They're bewildered. And then an angel appears and says, don't be afraid. That's it. And so kindly, some people come, some helpful, Holy Spirit-inspired people come and give us a, a shorter ending, and then we get the director's cut, the longer ending of Mark's gospel. And you know, all of it is valid. Please don't diminish the importance of the end chapters that have been added to Mark's gospel. There, is, there are some uh, Christians out there that would limit and would not read these next verses that are so key to us understanding the, the purpose that Jesus came, and it's this, to empower us with the Holy Spirit to do exactly what he did. Amen. It's a wonderful gospel, written to a Roman audience. The Roman people were a very practical people, and when Mark presents Jesus, he presents him as a servant. He's very practical, doing things that are powerful, that are awesome, that, that strike awe in people's hearts, that cause people to be either fearful or faith-filled. Lots of movement and interaction with people and their response to Jesus. He uses Roman coin names. He translates words into Latin. He explains Jewish traditions. A Jewish reader wouldn't need that. He translates Aramaic expressions, which was the, the Jewish language of the time. He's writing to a Roman audience. And in many ways, that Roman audience is not dissimilar to, the, to today's audience. You know, the world is looking for something, for someone that's authentic where it's not just words, but those words are backed up by actions. And we find this. The Romans were desperate for it. You know what? Modern society is no different. The world is desperate for something that's real and authentic. There's not just talk. There's not just flashiness or foaminess. That's not wishy-washy or wet, but actually is authentic and powerful and is backed by power. That proves that it's powerful. And if you go to Mark's Gospel, put the next slide up. I think we've got our stages in Mark's gospel. It's kind of broken up into three stages, really. You know, Mark doesn't really bother, or Peter, when he talks to Mark, doesn't really bother too much with time scales. But these first nine chapters, Mark 1 to 9, really effectively cover the first two and a half years of Jesus' ministry, which begins where? Where do we first meet Jesus in Mark's gospel? In the Jordan River, being baptized. You know, that, that's the lowest land level on earth the Jordan River, where it meets the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea 
is the lowest point on planet Earth that's on land. Obviously, you can go lower in mines and under the sea and all that stuff, but on land, it's the lowest point. And Mark's gospel is an ascent from, verses 1 to 9 is an ascent from the lowest point from the Jordan River up to the Mount of Transfiguration. And that first nine chapters is spent in the northern part of Israel around the Sea of Galilee. Jesus went back and forth between Jerusalem in the south and, and Galilee in the north all the time. You just read John's gospel. He's up and down all the time. But Mark talks about Jesus if he just stays there for two and a half years. But in there, he takes, takes us, if you like, from the Jordan to the mountain. And in this first nine chapters, we have 16 out of our 18 miracles. Right there, Jesus moving in power. And then we come to Mark 10. And Mark 10 is a bit of a transition book where Jesus starts to head south. Why is he heading south? Because he's going to Jerusalem. Why is he going to Jerusalem? Because he's going to be crucified there. And over the next four or five months, we see Jesus in the region of Perea, which was east to the River Jordan, south of Galilee. And he's going down, ends up towards Jericho, and then he comes down finally into Jerusalem. And Mark 11 to 16 is Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. One third of Mark's gospel is Jesus' last week before his crucifixion. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds a little bit disproportionate. But a third of Mark's gospel is essentially giving over to the cross. That's why it's such an evangelistic book. Such a powerful book. It's a book of transition. It's a book that reveals something of Jesus. Do you know what it reveals of Jesus? Firstly, we find that there's a gradual revelation of Jesus. You know what? That's perfectly normal for all of us. Isn't that true? Our revelation of Jesus is gradual. From when we first hear his name or use his name in vain or whatever it might be, to the point where finally we realize who he is and we make him Lord, we come under his lordship, we realize he's our savior. That was a gradual revelation that the Holy Spirit led us on. And you know what? We see this in Mark. Jesus, <laughs> Jesus delivers people from demons. But as he's talking to the demons, he's saying, shush. It's not time for you to tell everybody who I am. Be quiet. And then he heals a man with leprosy. And he says, right, go and get yourself checked out, but don't say anything. Now, Jesus wasn't using reverse psychology with a clever marketing technique. Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from the dead, but he says, don't tell anyone about this. He meets the, his three disciples are with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. They see him in all his glory, but he says, don't tell anyone what you've seen. Why did he do that? Because he understood what he was here to do. You know, too many Christians take the words of Jesus where he says, I've healed you, but don't tell anybody, too literally for today. He was only doing it for a certain period of time for a very specific reason. That is not how we're to live our lives. He says, I don't want you to tell anybody yet because he didn't want undue adoration and adulation. It would have side, potentially sidetracked him. It already caused him problems when people crowded around him. He had to withdraw to quieter places. He knew where he was here, and he, he knew that the cross was where he was headed. He wasn't going to be some great politician. He wasn't going to be some great leader of, of the day. He knew that what he was going for, his destiny was eternal, and part of it meant going to the cross, and nothing else was going to get in the way of that. The revelation, this gradual revelation, the messianic secret. Yeah. I've healed you and I'm the Lord, but shh. Yeah. No more. When he's healed us, we know he's the Lord. Tell everyone. 
Let people know what God has done in your life. Let people know who Jesus is. And we have this incredible revelation, this this kind of gradual revelation, and it takes two and a half years for even those who are with him every day to come to it. Because when we get to Mark 8, Jesus finally lays down this big question. He finally finds out from the disciples where their understanding is at, because time and again they've missed it. And and he says in, in Mark 8, turn to Mark 8 verse 27, Jesus is walking with his disciples. They've left Galilee. Mark 8, 27. And they went up to the villages near Caesarea Philippi. You know, Caesarea Philippi was a, 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 a place right near the source of the River Jordan. And the River Jordan's um, source ultimately came from the top of Mount Hermon, which was covered in snow. And as the snow melted, it, the water filtered down into the mountain through the cracks and crevices. But what happened was there was a hole underneath the River Jordan. Um, at its source, so that, if you like, the water never came as a waterfall. It came from underneath, and the river was formed from beneath. It was quite an unusual natural phenomenon, and so much so that people, you know, got the wrong impression, and they began to make it a, a, a holy place, or a place where they would kind of uh, have idols and, 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 and have rituals, and, and, and many cultish practices would happen there. And so there were often statues. There was a statue of, the, of a Greek god, Pan, There was a Caesar statue there. All of these were in Caesarea Philippi. And it's in the context of all these other gods, of all these other idols, that Jesus asks this question. Who do you say I am? Here we are, look. There's Caesar. There's Pan. There's all sorts of other idols. Who do you say I am? And they they kind of mince around the edges a little bit and throw up some good Hebrew prophets. And then Peter says, you're the Messiah. And Jesus says, yes, you finally got it. You've been with me for two and a half years. That gradual revelation has finally landed. You know who I am. And then we see throughout his ministry these, um, these images, these, these reactions of people responding to Jesus. Was it fear or was it faith? You know, Jesus, when, we, when, when, when the world is confronted with Jesus, we should expect there to be extremes of fear or faith. I think ambivalence and, and, and neutrality and, and people not being bothered sometimes about this is, is maybe our biggest threat and shows that we're not being as upfront as we should be. Because when people encountered Jesus, there was either fear or there was faith. Even with his disciples, Jesus asked this question, he calms the storm. And they were like, don't you care that we're gonna drown Jesus? He says, don't be afraid. Why are you afraid? Have faith. And then we find this revelation of Jesus. We find people's reaction to Jesus. And then finally we find this incredible description, the last third of of Mark's gospel, the description of the cross, where we see the fullness of Jesus' work, how we see his complete humanity and his complete divinity, that he was a man who could be crucified. And not just crucified, but crucified unjustly. They tried to drag him up for blasphemy. No one could pin him down, so instead they went for treason. You've been saying you're God's son. Everybody came up with testimonies. None of them matched. You know why? Because they had nothing on him. He's perfect. And so finally they drummed up some things. Well, they've said he's king of the Jews. Let's make it treason. We can't get him for blasphemy. Totally unjust on both counts. This man, misrepresented, treated unjustly, and dies a death, a criminal's death on the cross. And God that right from the beginning of his ministry, he talked about his death. He knew where he was going. 
He talked about his resurrection. He knew what was coming afterwards. He sits with the Father and he says, Lord, if you can take this cup away from me, do, but not my will, but yours. He knew what he was about to drink. Gradual revelation of Jesus. People's reactions to that revelation and this picture of who he really is. Totally God. Totally man. This is a great evangelistic book. This helps us to understand who Jesus is, what Jesus is like, what he came to do, what he achieved by his death and his resurrection, and who we're to be in the light of who he is. Miracles. You know, this is a book of miracles. I, I, I would love, actually, just to take a moment. Has anybody had a, a, got a testimony of God's healing or God moving in power in your life in this last week? We called people forward last Sunday for prayer, and, and, but not just for that. If you could just come forward, I'd love to hear some testimonies of, of Jesus working in people's lives. We've got a mic there. Janet, what? Um, a friend sat with me on Monday. We were just having a coffee, and I could see she was upset. And she began to cry, and she said, I didn't want to tell you because... You're going through a bit of a tough time yourself, as you know. And um, but over Christmas, she had had an argument with her son and her daughter-in-law who live in Leeds. And um, so she was crying. So I comforted her and I said, "While I've got you like this, can I pray for you?" <laughs> and, no escape. Uh, no escape. And she said, "Yeah, because he'll listen to you." Okay. So um, I prayed, and I prayed that um, she'd be reconciled with her son and that God would come into her life and make it all better. And um, we, we, we prayed, and I said, Amen. And the next day, she phoned me, and um, she said, guess who's just phoned me? Wow. And her son had phoned her. Wonderful. And I said, well, now we need to pray again to say thank you to God. Mm. And she said, yeah, okay, but he did listen to you. And I said, Catherine, he'll listen to you. Mm, and she says, yeah, but I don't believe in God. So I said, yeah, but if you don't believe in God, how do you, why did you say he'll listen to you? Mm. So anyway, so there we go. <laughs> amen. So that's God. Yeah, amen. Okay. amen. So Lord, we thank you and we pray for Kath. Yes. Lord, that she will come to know you, Jesus, as a result yes. of you moving in power in her life. Yes. Thank you for putting Janet with her on that day to pray. Yes. And we thank you for an answer to prayer. We thank you for that miracle in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you, Janet. Well done. Paul. Yeah, around about September, October, I had real pains in my feet. And at one point, both my feet, my ankles, my wrists ballooned up to the point you couldn't even see where my toes were. It was like rubbery bulbs that I was walking around on. It was hurt so much, I couldn't even stand to clean my teeth. But the swelling went down, and I'd seen a doctor, I'd seen a specialist, I'd seen another specialist. You can get the list. Anyway, um, on Sunday, I came up and Andrew prayed over me and I thought no more about it. And I realised on Thursday, my feet haven't hurt all week. Fantastic. Fantastic. Isn't it great? Yeah, amen. Brilliant. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thanks, Paul. Hello. Uh, a friend of mine's son, um, Ethan, he's 14. He's been battling cancer for about the past year or so. Um, and I saw them in town yesterday, and I asked how he was, and uh, his dad said he's fine, he's been giving me all clear. Um, we heard just before Christmas, so I said that's really good. Wonderful, thank mm. you. Brilliant, thanks Nicola. Thank Joe? Last, 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 last but not least. Last but not least. Um, 
I um, fell down the stairs two years ago and injured my back quite badly, so it's been on and off for the last two years or so. Um, over Christmas, it's been really painful, and last Sunday here, was the pain was just worse than it had been for a long time. Um, I couldn't stand, I couldn't sit, so I came up for prayers, and within the time that I went and had a cup of coffee, I thought, hmm, strange, it doesn't hurt anymore. Mm. It was in that short space of time from having a cup of coffee and I came back and I said, I'm not going to say who, who prayed for me because you'll all be running over to him or to them. And I said, he said, how are you feeling? And I said, do you know what? I'm feeling better already mm. after a cup of coffee. And <laughs> there you go. Fantastic. I couldn't, I couldn't do that last week. That's for sure. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you, Joe. Great stuff. He's a miracle worker. And you know what, God, as I read through Mark, this is what I'm inspired by. This is just what I want to, to talk about as, as I close is, is that we see the miracles here. And as I'm reading Mark in these, over these last few months and weeks, I'm more and more desperate for the miraculous to be evident consistently in my life and in the life of the church. Because I see it here and I think, this is for me. I see this here and I think, this is for us. And we know this. But I really believe that there's going to be a growing desire, a growing expectation, a growing hunger to see the miraculous. And you know, it's not miracles for miracles' sake. It's miracles for a reason. It's not miracles so that we become a famous church or that we, we make a name for ourselves. No, no, no. It's miracles for something that's far bigger than that, far more important than that. It's not miracles so that people will say, oh, that, that Richard is such a great elder or such a great pastor. If that's my motive, that is wrong. It's miracles. Miracles are there for a reason. Miracles are, are, are required. They do something. They achieve something. It says this, that a miracle is an extraordinary event manifesting divine intervention in human affairs. I like that. An extraordinary event manifesting divine intervention in human affairs. And it says this, it denotes that a miracle has purpose. Namely, to bring forth new revelation from God or validate the message and its messenger. Isn't that amazing? God's desire for this church, for us, is that we have and we live in the miraculous. A miraculous lifestyle. You know, as I read Mark's gospel, I see that we can move and live in the miraculous in the way that Jesus did. Jesus moved in the miraculous in power over the spiritual realm. Time and again, he casts out demons. And they go. They submit to his authority and his power. Time and again, we see disease leaving bodies. We find Simon uh, Peter's mother-in-law is healed of a fever, and then she gets up and makes them dinner. That's a double bonus, isn't it? We see leprosy healed. We see palsy healed. We see withered hands opened up. We see um, chronic in, um, issues of hemorrhaging healed. We see deaf and mute people healed. We see the blind seeing. We see all of these incredible moves of Jesus' power over sickness and disease. Miraculous over the spiritual realm. Miraculous over disease and, and, and issues of health. The miraculous over nature, the material things. That this is the one who walks on water. The one who takes a few loaves and some fish and feeds 5,000 and there's baskets and baskets of leftovers. Does it again and feeds 4,000. Speaks to a storm and says, be still. The natural realm talks to a fig tree, curses it and it withers. He's the Lord over the spiritual realm. He's the Lord over disease. He's the Lord over nature and he's the Lord over death. Jairus' daughter is raised from the dead. 
Mark is wanting us to understand that Jesus moved in the miraculous, but you know, when we read the end of Mark's gospel, he doesn't let us off the hook as to how we are to live. He says this, now it's your turn. Turn to Mark 16, please. Verse 15. I pray that we will be stirred more and more and more expectant to move in the miraculous. Why? So that we see the world touched. So that we see God glorified. So that people know the gospel, the good news that we carry is real. It's authentic. And therefore they'll believe in it and they will find their relationship with God for themselves through Jesus Christ. And in verse 15 he says this to his disciples. Go into a little bit of the world and sometimes say some things to some people. And, you know, people believe and they might come along to church or they might not. And when you go, you know, hope for the best, but plan for the worst. And and I've had enough of talking like that. Enough of thinking like that. Go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone. Anyone who believes and is baptized will be saved. But anyone who refuses to believe will be condemned. These miraculous signs will accompany those who believe. They will cast out demons in my name. They will speak new languages. They will be able to handle snakes with safety. And if they drink anything poisonous, it won't hurt them. They will be able to place their hands on the sick. And they will be healed. When the Lord Jesus had finished talking with them, he was taken up into heaven and sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. And the disciples went everywhere and preached and the Lord worked through them confirming what they said by many miraculous signs. I love it. I love it. The normal Christian life. The life of a disciple. The life of one who believes. To preach the good news to everyone. To overcome any issues in the spiritual realm by casting out demons. To speak in a heavenly language. To speak a language that angels and the Godhead understand that lifts us outside of, of the natural realm. Even in our own bedrooms when we speak in tongues, we're lifted out of the normal and the natural into something spiritual and heavenly in the discourse that's happening in the Godhead. Power. Able to handle things with safety, drink, you know what, material things, natural things don't need to affect us in the same way. And healing will come and be administered through our hands. How will we do this? You know, this is a key for me, to have the attitude of a servant. The attitude of a servant. Philippians 2. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I read Mark 1. And I read John the Baptist talk about Jesus and say this, I'm not even worthy to tie his his sandals. 
And yet Jesus comes to John and says, please baptize me. Wow. You know what John was baptizing people for? To repent. That every person that went into that water was a sinner until Jesus himself came and humbled himself. Perfect, and yet did it to fulfill all righteousness. The one who would perform many miracles, signs and wonders says this, if you want to be great, be a servant. If you want to do great things, be a servant. He was willing to be obedient to the Father. You know, all of us who submit to the Father's will, who are obedient to him, we're entrusted, we entrust our lives to him, we can expect God to do great things through us. He will, because he knows he can trust us. Mark 1, 7, Jesus submits himself, comes under the authority of the Father in obedience, is baptized and comes out, goes into the wilderness and is filled with power, the Holy Spirit, to serve God in all we do. Secondly, to serve one another. You know, it's really interesting. Once, once the disciples work out who Jesus really is, that he's the Messiah, they listen to Peter's answer. And finally, it's like the penny has dropped. And then they're taken, um, Peter, James, and John are taken to the Mount of Transfiguration and they see Jesus in all his glory. It's like this been building to this point. And his glory isn't reflected. It, glory radiates from him on the mountain. Snow-capped mountain, glorious, white snow, the sun blazing, reflecting the light from the snow, and yet the disciples aren't caught by that because the glory of Jesus himself is far greater than any snow-capped mountain. And they realize who he is, and then they start to argue amongst themselves about who's going to get on his good side. It's funny, I, I, I find it funny that they're walking along arguing about who's going to be the greatest. And in Mark 9, 33, they're traveling along. Jesus is up front. The disciples between them are all saying, well, I'm better than you and definitely better than you and I might not be as good as you, but I'm pretty much, I'm, I reckon I'm a good second or third in line here. And they're arguing to and fro and then finally Jesus turns around to them and says, uh, uh, what were you discussing out on the road? And they all go quiet. And he says this, whoever wants to be first must take last place. You know, that's, that's God's heart for us, that we understand that if we want to be great, that's good. If we want to do great things, that's what we've been saved for. That's what we've been redeemed for. That's what we've been restored for, to do great things. But never, ever lose sight of this. I'm a servant of God. I'm a servant of you. I'm here to serve the world. That in that attitude, God says, now I can entrust power to that person. I can know that they will move in power because they'll move from the right place. And in Mark 10, verse 35, they're all trying, James and John are trying to get the best seats in the house, you know, in heaven, to the left and the right of Jesus, and their mum got involved, and, you know, and then Jesus says again, it's all right to want to be great, but if you want to be great among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be the leader among you must be your servant, that we serve one another. And then he goes on, and then he goes earlier on, he says, and to be great and to do anything great in the world, that we need to be the servant of everyone else. To serve God in all we do, to serve one another, and to serve the world. And when we come with that attitude and that heart, I really believe we'll see greater power than we've ever seen before. Jesus never, ever allowed the miraculous lifestyle to go to his head. Can you imagine Jesus being boastful or proud or 
And yet the power that he moved in, the authority that he carried, and yet his heart was always a servant. Lord, let us have servant hearts. Lord, let us have obedient lives and hearts. Lord, let us be a people on whom you can entrust miraculous power to a degree that we've never experienced or known before. Lord, we know that you've given us all things. You've blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. But Lord, we want to be those who are faithful with what you've given us. Lord, we want to make sure that all that we do is done with the right attitude and the right heart. That Lord, that as we do that, we can expect great things to happen through our hands as a result of the words that we speak. Lord, I thank you for prayers that have been offered that have brought reconciliation this week. I want to thank you for prayers that have come and brought healing that has been administered within the following few minutes afterwards where something that's been around for two years has finally been dealt with. And Lord, I thank you that that's happened here and I thank you that that's happened out in the world. And Lord, our prayer is, as we seek to serve you, Lord, let us serve one another faithfully and let us realize that we're here to serve the world, to move in power and miracle to see this world touched and transformed for your glory, Lord. Lord, as we read this book together over the coming months, Lord, capture our heart afresh with a love for Jesus. A real, profound, defining love for Jesus. Even greater than before, however much we may feel we love him now, that it will be even deeper, even wider, even more... Uh, real Lord and Lord let us have a growing hunger and desire for the miraculous and a dissatisfaction when Lord things aren't in line with your word and your will but Father that we'll be a people who aren't afraid but we're a people of faith we're not a people that are like the rest of the world but we're a people who are like Jesus Christ that's our prayer Lord Amen. Amen Amen thank you Thanks so much for listening today. For more information about Living Rock Church and for more great teaching, please visit www.livingrockchurch.org.uk.